Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. Sutra Study Sunday, the Malakirti Sutra, Part 3. Was anybody not here for Part 2 or 1? Anybody? Were, were you here for some of it? For one? Okay. Um, one, but not two. Okay, okay. Um, I'm going to do a very quick recap of the first eight chapters that were covered just to, to create the setting. Uh, and to remind us sort of what's going on. Um, this is the Vimalakirti Nirdesha Sutra, or the advice of Vimalakirti, uh, a unique sutra. I'm hoping to get through all the chapters so that at the end we can talk a little bit more about the history of the sutra, kind of like historical context, but I definitely want to get through the whole story. Um, very quickly, though, the first chapter, The Purification of Buddha Lands, starts with this fantastical tale. Um, we are in the city of Vaishali, real city in India, northeastern India. And in Vaishali, the Buddha's there with everybody. And there's a clan of people called the Vichalis. And there's five or eight a very noble Vichali and 500 of his friends that all come and see the Buddha. This is the very first thing that happens in the sutra, and they all present these bejeweled parasols, umbrellas, to the Buddha. And the Buddha miraculously turns all 501 of these parasols into one giant canopy that is the entire sky. And in this jeweled canopy... Everyone here in this world can see all these other worlds and all these other universes, and it's very spectacular. And in this opening chapter, in which all these miraculous things are happening, there is a monk named Shariputra who is wondering about the nature of Buddha lands. And he has heard, which something that many Buddhists have heard, which is that when a Buddha appears in a world, in a land, in a Lokadatu, that world system or that Lokadatu becomes purified by virtue of there being a Buddha in the world. And so Shariputra asks, I don't get it. This is supposed to be a Buddha land purified by the Buddha, yet everywhere all I see is defilement, suffering, all, you know, it's terrible everywhere. And in this opening chapter, the Buddha, in a rare occasion, unlocks his Padmasana, his lotus pose, and places his touches his big toe to the ground and instantly the whole world is transformed before Shariputra's eyes. Now all of a sudden everybody's on these giant bejeweled thrones and everybody's a Buddha or Bodhisattva. Some people are 10,000 feet tall. Everything's beautiful and he's like, oh my gosh the Buddha was right. The pure land's right here. Buddha lifts up his toe. The world's immediately transformed right back to the way that Shariputra had seen it before and he says, oh my gosh, it was the defilements of my mind that we're seeing this Buddha land as defiled, not the defilement of the Buddha land. And that's the opening of this sutra. And as I have described in our previous sessions, that in most Mahayana sutras, 
the first chapter is sort of the whole sutra in an encapsulated form. So the whole message of the sutra is actually in everything I just said. But what we're going to get now is 11 more chapters of unfolding or unflowering or unpacking what all of that means. And so it's actually in the second chapter that we are introduced to the hero or the star of the show, Vimalakirti. He is a Vaichali. He's from that clan of Vichali people. He lives in Vaishali. Um, and he's described as the smartest guy in, Vaisha, in, in Vaishali. He's described as a bodhisattva of bodhisattvas, that even though he lives in a big fancy house, it's as if he doesn't own anything. And as, you know, all of these things, I'm, I'm, I'm avoiding trying to read anything from these chapters because I will not stop reading. So I'm just trying to paraphrase. And if you were here, you know, the Malakirti is lauded as master of all liberations. He plays with the super knowledges you know, infinite in his compassion, infinite in his giving, infinite in his wisdom, all of these things. And yet he wears the white robes of a layperson. And he lives a normal life. He hangs out in casinos and brothels, all of these places that traditionally Buddhists weren't supposed to go to. And so he is introduced as this unique figure, this unique character. And in this opening, or in the second chapter, introducing to Malakirti, he performs one of many miracles. And the first miracle he performs is making it appear as if he's sick. And that's sort of the, the, the essence of this sutra is about the sick man, Vimalakirti. And uh, when I introduced the sutra, I tried to get across to everybody that this sutra is trying to be funny, it's trying to be weird, and so... When somebody like Vimalakirti does something like make all the furniture in his house disappear so that his house becomes empty, it is a funny, the, it's a Buddhist text trying to be funny about emptiness when he does that. And so all of these things are references to Buddhism. And if you're not in on the joke, you'll think it's some fantastic story, but not quite get its uh, larger import. So Vimalakirti makes himself sick. Everybody in Vaishali is like, oh, poor Vimalakirti. And so they, gave, they all go see him, and he delivers a Dharma talk to them, a very wise Dharma talk. Um, that happens in chapter 2. In chapter 3, we go back to the Buddha, where he is. And the Buddha knows, oh, Vimalakirti's sick. We should go check in on him. We should go check to see if he's Okay. And so the Buddha proceeds to ask all of the shravakas, all of the disciples, the monks, the arhats, the so-called, um, what we today would call Theravadins. He asks all of his monks, hey, go check on Vimalakirti, make sure he's okay. And one by one, starting with Shariputra, then Matgulyayana, and all the way down the list, all of the Buddha's disciples, his, the voice hearers, they one by one say, I can't go see Vimalakirti. Because one time I was practicing my kind of Theravadan type of Buddhism and the Malakirti came along and schooled me on the Mahayana. He schooled me on this more transcendent type of Buddhism and I, you know, I didn't even realize. And so I can't go see the Malakirti because I'm not at his level. So all through chapter three, it's one after the, the next of disciples recounting 
a, a teaching that Vimalakirti gave them. So then the Buddha in chapter 4 resorts to asking all the bodhisattvas, why don't you go check on Vimalakirti? And one by one, even the bodhisattvas who represent the Mahayana tradition, they recount about how one time Vimalakirti schooled them on what it really means to be a Mahayana Buddhist. So one by one, all the bodhisattvas decline. Until we get to chapter 5, where the prince of wisdom, the bodhisattva of pranya, transcendental wisdom, named Manjushri, he says, I'll go check on him. And so chapter 5 is all of the bodhisattvas, all of the shravakas, following behind Manjushri as they go to Vimalakirti's house. And they go to check on him. And the, this chapter is a wild chapter in which Manjushri and Vimalakirti have this sort of wisdom off, trying to like <laughs> battle who's, who's wiser in that way. Um, so that's a fun chapter. In chapter six, though, and I'm going to take just a moment to focus on chapter six, which is called, what do they call it? They call it the, uh, the Inconceivable Liberation. So this is a funny chapter. So the, this whole sutra is kind of made up of sort of two things. Dialogues of wisdom, mainly with Manjush- or sorry, with Vimalakirti. So these heavy back and forths. Or this story of these miracles. That's sort of the two sides of this. So there's stuff that you could read a million times and maybe still not quite understand what's being said. Those are the discourses. And there's, then there's this beautiful story that is a teaching unto itself. It's what they would call an upaya, or a skillful means. And this chapter, chapter 6, starts off with this funny thing where Shariputra, this guy Shariputra, is looking around and he's wondering, because Vimalakirti's house is empty and there's no furniture, he's wondering, where's everybody going to sit down? And Vimalakirti pipes in, reads Shariputra's mind, and says, Hey, Shariputra, did you come here for the Dharma or for a chair? And Shariputra's like, Whoa, you know. And Vimalakirti proceeds to school Shariputra on what Dharma really is that it's nothing that could be obtained and nothing could be grabbed, da 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 da. But to alleviate Shariputra's concern, the Malakirti performs a miracle. And what he does is, is that he says to Manjushri, hey Manjushri, I've heard you've been around, not just been around the block, but you've been around the multiverse. What Buddha land have you been to where they have the best thrones? And he says, well, one time I was in Marudyavaja, and there, there is a Buddha named Marupradipraja, and this Buddha, who is so big, he is as big as Mount Maru. He has these thrones, these bejeweled thrones that are so big. They're definitely the most beautiful, best thrones in the multiverse. And so Vimalakirti performs this miracle where he brings from Marudivaja, this Buddha land, and all of these giant thrones descend into Vimalakirti's house. Bejeweled thrones that are several hundred thousand miles tall. And some of the bodhisattvas in the room, they just sit right down. 
But the Shravakas and all of the lesser Bodhisattvas are like, how am I ever going to sit on that giant throne? And the Malakirti schools everybody that if they just have faith, mindfulness of the Buddha named Maru Pradipuraja, they will, they will be able to sit in those thrones. And sure enough, everybody sort of prays to, but prayer is not quite the right word, but they hold in their minds this Buddha Maru Pradipuraja, and miraculously they grow and everybody can sit down. And the bigger miracle, perhaps, is that even though these thrones are so big and there's so many people in Vimalakirti's house, it's as if there's room for everybody with lots of room to spare. So there's this miracle in which Vimalakirti's house has expanded in some way. Anyways, that's what happens in chapter six. Now everybody's sitting down. Last week, we spent a lot of time on chapter seven, the goddess, which is the appearance of this Devi, a Deva, a celestial being who is a female celestial being. And this is a great chapter in which Shariputra, again, who represents the old school Theravadan ways, and the goddess who represents not even the Mahayana, but represents this like other, it's like even bigger than the Mahayana. Right, And so they have this discourse that's really kind of amazing and wonderful because Shariputra represents these old school Buddhist ways that were rather patriarchal, uh, kind of favored men over women. And so this discourse between the goddess and the monk is very interesting. And we went through this where the goddess or where the monk, Shariputra, basically says, wow, you're so smart. Why don't you just transform out of your female form then? And then that thus begins the interesting thing where then the goddess swaps Shariputra with herself so that Shariputra is now in a female form and the goddess is now in Shariputra's form and asks Shariputra, why don't you transform yourself out of your female form? And he's like, I don't even know how I got in this female form, let alone how am I going to get out of this female form? And so it's a very... Very interesting dialogue, a Buddhist dialogue about gender, gender identity, all this stuff. Yes, please, please, please. Just a question. Um, on that one, how much is that, I mean, as, as relevant as it is for us right now to, to look at it from a feminist perspective, how much of that is about um, just beliefs in general, just fixed beliefs? How much is it, is, or, or is it at all? Those two things are closely related if you think about it, right? <laughs> kind of the same thing. Um, ultimately, that is talking about attachment to any identity. Attachment to my male identity. Attachment to your female identity. And a sutra like this is saying, no attachment. And that kind of reversal where Shariputra is like, I don't even know, I don't even know what I would transform it kind of, in a very subtle way, gets to pointing directly to consciousness that has no gender or identity in that way. But it's also a very politically charged argument, which is what I've been trying to get across, is that this whole sutra is in dialogue and discourse with what we would call Theravada in Buddhism. So there's this very like, you know, practical, this world, political dialogue going on, but there's also a deeper philosophical dialogue about attachment and clinging. 
Yep. And this is at a time where there are different, actual different schools, like sort of recognized. They've already established, like, we do it this way and you guys do it the shitty way. Or and there's even a larger schism in a way between people that think this Mahayana stuff is a little too carried away and the Mahayana that think those Theravadans are a little too conservative, clinging to older ways. And I've mentioned this, you know, that they, Theravadans split over very ridiculous little things like carrying salt in a rhinoceros horn. And there's a group of Theravadans that thought it was okay to carry salt around, and there was a group of Theravadans that thought it was totally wrong to carry salt around. And they split over this. The Mahayanans are like, yo, those people are a little too clinging. Both of them. <laughs> Got it, I think. Sorry. Um, all right, so the goddess is a, a beautiful chapter. I definitely encourage everybody to go back to that. Chapter 8, where we ended last time, is about this sort of being reborn or being born into the family of the Buddhas. And this is where coming on the heels of a conversation about not identifying with male or female, not even identifying with the human form, we're being born into this family of Buddhas where we are, you know, arguably identifying with our Buddha nature, but our Buddha nature is not clinging. So how do you identify with your Buddha nature? By not clinging, even to the idea of Buddha nature. That, did that come across right? That kind of, that's the logic of this family of the Tathagatas here, and this is where it gets into this, like, um, uh, you know, that the, the realm of sensual desire is the realm of the bodhisattvas, is the realm of the Buddhas. It's not some glorified nirvana. It's here. In, it's through the realm of desire that we get enlightened. It's through our imperfections that we get better. All of those ideas is, is the message, message of the family of the Buddhas. Okay. Everybody okay with where we've been? You can go back. These are all online now, so you can go back and listen to those chapters. But let's go further. Chapter 9, the Dharma door of non-duality. This is a very famous chapter in the Vimalakirti Sutra unto itself. I'm kind of glad that we ended where we did so we could start here. This amazing, wild idea of a, a Dharma door. Chinese, what do they call it? A Dharma gate. So this Dharma door, is, I, I have yet, myself, I've been you know, teaching and doing this a long time, and this idea of a Dharma door, I think actually next week, and I'm going to choose a different sutra that I mentioned, and I want to choose one that focuses on these Dharma doors. Because I'm interested in these Dharma doors. I think it's a really interesting idea. And so there's another sutra that's like the Dharma door of the something or other that I think we might do next week. This is the Dharma door, the Faman, the entering the Dharma, um, the Dharma door of non-duality, Advaitya. Advaitya, that's non-duality. Um, then the Lichavi Vimalakirti asked all the bodhisattvas, good sirs, please explain how all the bodhisattvas, how each of you, enter the Dharma door of non-duality. So yes, each of them, tell me how you enter the door, enter the Dharma door of non-duality. And it begins, the bodhisattva uh, Dharma Vikuravana declared noble sir. 
production and destruction are two. But what is not produced and does not occur cannot be destroyed. Thus, the attainment of the tolerance of the birthlessness of all things is an entrance into non-duality. Period. Next, bodhisattva. So these are very short sentences. None is more than like two sentences. Yeah, they're all very short. Descriptions by these bodhisattvas on how to enter the Dharma door of non-duality, how to conceive of non-duality, how to think of non-duality, how to practice non-duality, all of these. And last week, we talked a little bit about this idea of the tolerance of the birthlessness of all things. And we talked about how it was interesting that it was a tolerance where you're supposed to just be cool with this idea. It's not necessarily about penetrating insight into this idea. It's actually just about being comfortable or tolerant of this idea that all objects are not created not made anywhere, this not made anywhere, and in terms of sentient beings, not born, not vaginally born, not created. That is the birthlessness of all things. All things, anything you could think of. Oh, look, here's a thing, and it's actually made of two things, or three, or seven, or a million, right? But anything, oh, here's a thing again. Anything we can conceive of, look at all these things, right? All these things that we can conceive of are in actuality not created or born. So if it's a living thing, it's not born. And if it's an object, it's not created. And for Buddhism, they really don't uh, distinguish between those two things. Meaning that they talk a lot about the birthlessness of this bowl. And they'll keep talking about how it wasn't born. What they mean is, is that it wasn't manufactured. It wasn't made. All right? Now, if you were here last week, you might remember why that is. <laughs> how, how it is that all things are not birthed, are not created. Right? And this has to do with the basic idea of Mahayana Buddhism that all these things that we're talking about, all things are actually dependently originated based on all kinds of other ideas, the mind projecting ideas onto it, and da-da-da-da-da. And so because the bowl is dependently originated, what I think of as this bowl, this bowl, what I think of as this bowl is actually just a little, it's like, um, how can I do this? Right? <laughs> so I'm like, I'm looking at that bowl, right? But it's really like, and so that is actually this, the idea of a bull that I think I'm seeing out there in the world. But that's actually a mental projection. This is the mental that's being whoop, over there. So if 
this is just a dependently originated idea based on a bunch of conditioning and all of that, right? Right? What about that thing over there? What is the nature of that thing over there? That thing over there doesn't exist. That thing over there is this thing, which means this is empty. This is not actually this bowl. It is the, a mental projection that I consistently, persistently throw onto the world and keep talking about it. <laughs> right? I keep talking about it, right? But do you kind of see what I'm getting at? That this bowl is actually the mentally created bowl. And insofar as it's a mentally created bowl, where was it made? Was, it ma was, was this bowl made in Bangladesh? This bowl was made in my mind, right? That's where this bowl was made. And in fact, Buddhism wants to remind you that all of this was not made in Bangladesh or Indochina or anywhere. It was all made in our mind. That's the origin of all of this. So this bowl actually is empty. This bowl wasn't manufactured anywhere. This bowl's being made in my mind right now. And it keeps being, and I'm like, ha-ha, bowl, ha-ha. I keep doing it to you too. Right? Reinforcing this notion of this bowl, but this bowl, that bowl, is empty because it's a mental fabrication. And insofar as it's a mental fabrication, it's not born anywhere. And it will not be destroyed. Because if I think this will be destroyed, like, oh, I'm going to get out my blowtorch and until it melts it away, right? That is reinforcing the notion that, that that's real, that that's, and that it'll change and morph. Are we following this? So because it's a dependently originated mind bowl, it wasn't made anywhere, and it will not be destroyed. What does the Bodhisattva say again? Production and destruction are two. But what is not produced and does not occur cannot be destroyed. Thus the attainment of the tolerance of the birthlessness of all things is an entrance to non-duality. Are, are we at least like rubbing up against it? Right? If we're rubbing up against it, then that's the point of this chapter. Each of these single sentences or two sentences, you could spend a lot of time on exactly what's being said and really think about it. So I'm not going to spend all night just on that one, but I want you to know that this chapter's fun, like they all are, but this one's fun because what happens is, is that you can read it, you can read it like... Um, so the Bodhisattva Dharma Virakavana says about this production and destruction are two, but what is not produced and does not occur can never be destroyed. Thus, the attainment of the tolerance of birthless things is an entrance to non-duality. But then the Bodhisattva Sriganda says, Ah, oh, but I and mine are two. If there is no presumption of a self, there can be no possessiveness. Thus, the absence of presumption is an entrance to non-duality. Then, so, 
I mean, okay, here's what's going to happen. Because of the nature of tonight, these go on and on. And what I mean to say is, is that each bodhisattva kind of goes deeper than the next bodhisattva, goes deeper than the next. So, for example, we keep going, we keep going, we keep going. Then we get down to, um, how about this guy? Pariguda, Bodhisattva Pariguda. He declares self and selflessness are dualistic. Since the existence of self cannot be perceived, what is there to be made selfless? Thus the non-dualism of the vision of their nature is the entrance, or sorry, thus the non-dualism of the vision of nature is an entrance to non-duality. Self and selflessness. So, I mean, what I want you to see is there's... So the next one, for example. So that's like, whoa, self and selflessness. But the whole time the Buddha was talking about selflessness. But now this is saying having a self or being without a self is dualistic. And that... So it's like, well, then how about knowledge and ignorance are dualistic? The natures of ignorance and knowledge are exactly the same, for ignorance is undefined, incalculable, and beyond the sphere of thought. The realization of this is an entrance to non-duality. Oh, now, Pradidarshana, he declares matter itself is void or empty. Voidness or emptiness does not result from the destruction of matter. But the nature of matter itself is emptiness. That's what I'm saying, right? The nature of matter itself is emptiness. Therefore, to speak of voidness on one hand and of matter on the other hand, or of sensation or of perception or of conditioning of consciousness, the other skandhas, so to speak of all of that is entirely dualistic. Consciousness itself is emptiness. Emptiness does not result from the destruction of consciousness, but the nature of consciousness itself is voidness. Such understanding of the five aggregates and the knowledge of them as such by means of knowledge is the entrance to non-duality. If you didn't catch it, if you've ever read or know the Heart Sutra, that was the Heart Sutra right there in a kernel in one little line of this larger sutra, where he says, form is no different from emptiness. Emptiness and form are not different. The nature of matter itself is emptiness. And I just tried to explain how, why that is. It goes like this. So they're getting crazier and crazier and crazier and crazier until... Okay, okay I got to speak this up. da 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 Okay, so almost getting up to the end here, Bodhisattva Manikuttaraja, that's a good one, Manikuttaraja, declared, it is dualistic to speak of good practices and bad practices. One who is on, wait, so it's tricky. Language is tricky, so the, the language is path. But they're talking about a, a practice. They're actually kind of talking about Theravada versus Mahayana. So just know that. 
It is dualistic to speak of good paths and bad paths. One who is on the path is not concerned with good or bad paths. Living in such unconcern, he entertains no concepts of path or not path. Understanding the nature of concepts, his mind does not engage in duality, such as the entrance to non-duality. Then the Bodhisattva Satyarata declared, it is dualistic to speak of true and false. When one sees truly, one does not ever see any truth. So how could one see falsehood? How is this? One does not see with the physical eye. One sees with the eye of wisdom. And with the wisdom eye, one sees only insofar as there is neither sight nor not sight. There, where there is neither sight nor not sight, is an entrance to non-duality. When the bodhisattvas had given all their explanations, they all addressed the crown prince Manjushri and said, Manjushri, what is the bodhisattva's entrance to non-duality? Manjushri replied, good sirs, you have all spoken very well. Nevertheless, all your explanations are themselves dualistic. To know no one teaching, to express nothing, to say nothing, to explain nothing, to announce nothing, to indicate nothing, to designate nothing, that is the entrance into non-duality. Then the crown prince Manjushri said to the Lichavi Vimalakirti, we have now all given our own teachings, noble sir. Now may you elucidate the teaching of the entrance into the principle of non-duality. And thereupon the Lichavi Vimalakirti kept his silence, saying nothing at all. The crown prince Manjushri applauded the Lichavi Vimalakirti. Excellent, excellent, noble sir. This is indeed the entrance into the non-duality of all bodhisattvas. Here, there is no use for syllables, sounds, or ideas. When these teachings had been declared, 5,000 bodhisattvas entered the Dharma door of non-duality and attained the tolerance of the birthlessness of all things. Questions? I mean, again, this is like a premier chapter of the sutra. Each of these bodhisattvas, of which I skipped many, each of them is like really heavy ideas. So not questions about specificity, but any general questions. Please. How do you maintain morality? And, you know, because I assume some can use these teachings to, to just do bad things, right? Because they would say, no, it's all the same, right? Uh, like, upaya, no upaya, this is the door for you know, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, I mean... Indeed, what you're saying is true. There's sort of this, um, oh my God. I mean, that's a huge can of worms. Um, hold on to that. Hold on till later for that. And I don't want to, I'm not avoiding, it's just not the time. It's not the time. Because, okay, so that's, again, amazing chapter. But let's go to chapter 10. I think 
you, the answer to that question actually is in this chapter 11. Very much so now that I really think about it. So, chapter 10. Thereupon. The Venerable Shariputra. So here we go again. Thereupon the Venerable Shariputra thought to himself, if these great bodhisattvas do not adjourn before new time, when are they going to eat? <laughs> so what we have here is yet another classic, which is that it is, of course, a steadfast Buddhist rule that you are not to eat after midday. Afternoon, that's it. That was the rule. So Shariputra's sitting here like, uh-oh, it's getting close to noon, and if we don't get out of here soon, we're not going to eat. So get Shariputra, you know, classic Shariputra, right? <laughs> the Lichavi Vimalakirti, knowing telepathically the thought of the Venerable Shariputra, spoke to him thus. Shariputra, the Tathagata has taught the eight liberations, the four dhyanas and the four samadhis. You should concentrate on those liberations, listening to the Dharma with a free mind, sorry, with a mind free of preoccupations with such material things. Just wait a minute, Shariputra, and you will eat such food as you have never tasted before. Then the Lichavi Vimalakirti set himself in such a concentration and performed such a miraculous feat that those bodhisattvas and those great disciples were enabled to see the universe called Sarvaganda Suganda, which is located in the direction of the zenith beyond as many Buddha lands as there are sands in 42 Ganges rivers. There, the Tathagata named Sugandakuta resides lives and is manifest. In that universe, the trees emit a fragrance that far surpasses all the fragrances, human and divine, of all the Buddha fields in all ten directions. In that universe, even the names Shravaka, Pratekya Buddha, do not, they don't even exist. And the Tathagata Sugandakuta teaches the Dharma to a gathering of bodhisattvas only. In that universe, all the houses, the avenues, the parks, and the palaces are all made of various perfumes. And the fragrance of the food eaten by those bodhisattvas pervades immeasurable universes. At this time, the Tathagata Sugandakuta sat down with his bodhisattvas to take their meal. And the deities called Gandavyuhahara, who were all devoted to the Mahayana, served and attended upon the Buddha and all his bodhisattvas. Everyone in the gathering at that house of Vimalakirti was able to see distinctly this universe wherein the Buddha Sugandakuta and his bodhisattvas were taking their meal. Vimalakirti addressed the whole gathering in his house and said, Good sirs, is there any, any among you who would like to go to that Buddha land to bring back some food? But restrained by the supernatural power of Manjushri, none of them volunteered to go. The Malakirti then said to the crown prince Manjushri, Manjushri, are you not ashamed of such a gathering? 
Manjushri replied, Noble sir, did not the Tathagata declare, declare those who are unlearned should not be despised? Then Vimalakirti, without raising from his, without getting up from his couch, magically emanated an incarnation bodhisattva whose body was of a golden color adorned with all the auspicious signs and marks of a, of a superman and of such an appearance that he, and his golden appearance was such that it outshone the entire assembly. Vimalakirti addressed that incarnated bodhisattva Noble son, go in the direction of the zenith, and when you have crossed as many Buddha lands as there are sands in 42 Ganges rivers, you will reach a universe called Sarvaganda Suganda, where you will find the Buddha Suganda Kuta taking his meal. Go to him, and having bowed down to his feet, make the following request. Say, the Lichavi Vimalakirti bows down 100,000 times at your feet, O Lord, and asks after your health. If you have but little trouble, little discomfort, little unrest, if you are strong, well, without complaint, and living in touch with supreme happiness. Having thus asked after his health, you should request him, saying, Vimalakirti asked the Lord to give me the remains of your meal, with which he will accomplish the Buddha work in this universe, this world, called Saha. Thus, those living beings uh, with inferior aspirations will be inspired with Laspia aspirations for the good, um, and they'll be celebrated far and wide. So at that time, the incarnated bodhisattva body of Vimalkirti said very good and obeyed his instructions. And in the sight of all the bodhisattvas, he turned his face upward and was gone, and they saw him no more. When he reached the universe, Sarvaganda Suganda, he bowed down at the feet of the Tathagata Suganda and said, da-da-da, all the stuff Vimalakirti asked him to ask, right? Um, ah, yeah. So he, the, the emanated body, are you following this? This is like kind of getting a little out there. So the emanated body of Vimalakirti goes to this world in the zenith, and says, I come on behalf of Vimalakirti, ask of your health, and wants some of your extra food, right? So then at that time, the bodhisattvas up there of the Buddha, of the Buddha land of the Tathagata Sugandakuta, they were astonished. And they asked Sugandakuta, Lord, where is there such a great being as this? Like Vimalakirti, where he's emanating his body. Where is this Saha world? What does it mean? Or And then... I skipped a part, but... And what does this emanation body mean by those of inferior paths? Because he's talking about how the Buddha, the Buddha here teaches everybody, even people in inferior paths. So having thus been questioned by all the bodhisattvas, Suganda Kuta said, Noble sons, the universe called Saha exists beyond as many Buddha lands as there are in the directions of the Nadir, as there are sands in 42 Ganges rivers. There, the Buddha called Shakyamuni teaches the Dharma to living beings who aspire to inferior ways, and in that Buddha land, who are tainted by the five corruptions. There, the Bodhisattva named Vimalakirti, who lives in the inconceivable liberation, teaches the Dharma to the Bodhisattvas. 
He sends this incarnation bodhisattva here in order to celebrate my name, in order to show the advantages of this universe, and in order to increase the roots of the virtues of all bodhisattvas. The bodhisattvas up there exclaimed, how great must that bodhisattva be himself if his magical incarnation is thus endowed with such supernormal powers, strength, and fearlessness. Sugandakuta said, the greatness of that bodhisattva is such that he sends magical incarnations to all Buddha lands in the ten directions. And all these incarnation bodies accomplish the work of the Buddha for all living beings in all Buddha lands. Then, the Tathagata Sugandakuta poured some of his food impregnated with all the perfumes into a fragrant vessel and gave it to the incarnation bodhisattva. And the 90 million bodhisattvas of that universe volunteered to go along with the incarnation body, saying, Lord, we also would like to go to that universe called Saha to see this honorable Buddha Shakyamuni and to see Vimalakirti and all those uh, bodhisattvas. Uh, that Buddha says, go ahead, do what you want to do. And uh, yeah, trying to skip. Then the incarnation bodhisattva gave the vessel. Oh, so then er, the, the incarnation body comes back with, what was it, 90 million? 90 million bodhisattvas from the land of Sarvaganda Suganda. And then the incarnation bodhisattva gave the vessel of food to Vimalakirti, and the fragrance of that food penetrated the entire great city of Vaishali, and its sweet perfume spread throughout 100 universes. Okay. Yeah, okay. So they basically, I'm skipping ahead. They, everybody eats the food, and then all, and then all of a sudden they all start to smell coming out of their pores this, this perfume. So they all eat this food and then they start to smell this uh, angelic ambrosia scent coming out of their pores. All right. Um, da, 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 da. Okay, yeah, and I'll paraphrase this. But basically, the, all those bodhisattvas that come from this other world to come here they ask, to, they want to know about this Buddha Shakyamuni. And, and basically, they, they describe how people in this world, because of their slightly dull, lesser capacity, the Buddha needs to explain his teachings in all of these different ways. For some people, he's got to explain it this way, and for some people, they've got to explain it this way. And all those bodhisattvas from Sarvaganda Suganda, they're like, wow, that Buddha's amazing. He teaches it this way, he teaches it that way. Our Buddha, he just releases these smells. And that's how he teaches. He just releases smells. I, I, I skipped a part where they describe that in that land, the Buddha, he, they just release smells. That's how they teach the Dharma. And, and, they, and that's it. That's how it's done. So they all come here and they're like, oh, that's crazy that he like mixes it up and he teaches it this way, but then that way. He's like a freestyle Dharma teacher. Amazing. All right. Questions? There's something 
really beautiful going on in this chapter. If, 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 you, if you didn't quite pick up on it, I would like to, to really elucidate, and, uh, elucidate it. So there's this Pure Land Buddhism, right? We talked about it classes ago. We read a Pure Land Sutra, all of that, right? And there's this way in which this world sort of sucks in Pure Land Buddhism. This world kind of sucks because of the suffering and the duke and all of that. And there are these heavenly abodes, these pure lands. And there maybe there are 90 million miles, there's you know, 90 million Buddha lands that way or 90 million Buddha's lands that way. But if you can get there, if you can get to Sukhavati Vyuha or Abriti or all these different places, it's great there. It's beautiful. So you see what I'm saying? So pure land Buddhism in general is kind of predicated on the idea that this world sort of sucks, those worlds are amazing. This amazing, beautiful little chapter flips it where they go to one of these beautiful places where it's just like beautiful smells everywhere, and then this world becomes a Buddha land for those people, and they want to come here. Here we are trying to get out of here and this is saying, don't you get it? 90 million bodhisattvas from that land want to come here. It's a beautiful reversal, which, in case I forget, is totally reminiscent of chapter one of Shariputra being shown the Buddha land. That It's dope here. Enough with the uh, escapism. Escapism mentality of like, got to get to a Buddha land, got to get to enlightenment, got to get to nirvana, anything but here. It's exactly what this is saying. No, 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 no. You live in a Buddha land. All right. Um, uh, Again, these miracles where, you know, uh, monks aren't supposed to sit on high chairs or thrones. So then these beautiful thrones descend. Uh, Monks aren't supposed to eat after noon. And so right at the, you know, end of the clock, it's right before noon. This magical food comes from the heavens. It's really beautiful discourse going on in the story. It's really, you know, again, I could go line by line through the discourses, but this story's beautiful. And if, again, if you don't get the subtle messages, it's sort of like, what? Like 90, you know, 42 Ganges rivers? Anyways, let's do it. Let's do it. We've got plenty of time. Chapter 11. So now... Now it gets really wild because meanwhile, oh, me okay. So all of the, chapter two, all the way to where we are now. This has all been in Vimalakirti's house, or maybe some other universes, right? But now, meanwhile, in the area in which the Buddha was teaching the Dharma in the Garden of Amrapali, that's where this started. The garden of Amrapali expanded, excuse me, expanded and grew larger. And the entire assembly appeared tinged with a golden hue. Thereupon, the venerable Ananda asked the Buddha, Lord, this expansion and enlargement of the garden of Amrapali and this golden hue of the assembly, what does this auspicious sign portend? And the Buddha declared, Ananda, these auspicious signs portend that the Lichavi Vimalakirti and the Crown Prince Manjushri, attended by a great multitude, are coming 
into the presence of the Tathagata. And at that moment, the Lichavi of Malakirti said to the crown prince Manjushri, Hey Manjushri, let us take these many living beings into the presence of the Lord so that they may see the Tathagata and bow down to him. Manjushri replied, Noble sir, send them if you feel the time is right. Thereupon, the Lichavi Vimalakirti performed a miraculous feat of placing the entire assembly replete with the thrones from Maru to Prajavaja. Right, so all the assembly replete with the thrones from Maru to Prajavaja upon his right hand. And then, having transported himself magically into the presence of the Buddha, placing it on the ground in front of him. He bowed down at the feet of the Buddha, circumambulated him to the right seven times with his palms joined together, and then withdrew to one side. The bodhisattvas, who had come from the Buddha field of the Tathagata Sugandakuta, descended from their lion thrones and bowing down at the feet of the Buddha, placed their palms together in reverence and withdrew to one side. And then the other bodhisattvas, great spiritual heroes, and the great disciples descended from their thrones. Likewise, and having bowed at the feet of the Buddha, withdrew to one side. Likewise, all the Indras, Brahmas, Lokapalas, and the gods bowed at the feet of the Buddha and withdrew to one side. Then the Buddha, having delighted those bodhisattvas with greetings, declared, Noble sons, be seated upon your thrones. Thus commanded by the Buddha, they all took their seats. So, just to recap, right? In Vimalakirti's house, from one Buddha land, these thrones descended. And then from this other Buddha land, all these bodhisattvas appeared. Then Vimalakirti took all of them, thrones included, on his right hand, teleported over to the Buddha, and offered them all to the Buddha. Just wanted to make sure that we were clear that that is what <laughs> had just happened. The Buddha said to Shariputra, Shariputra, did you just see the miraculous performances of all, the of all those bodhisattvas, those best of beings? I have seen them, Lord. And what concept did you produce toward them? Lord, I produced the concept of inconceivability toward them. Their activities appeared inconceivable to me to the point that I was unable to think of them, to judge them, or even to imagine them. Then the Venerable Ananda asked the Buddha, Lord, what is this perfume, the likes of which I have never smelled before? And the Buddha answered Ananda, this perfume emanates from all the pores of all those bodhisattvas. Shariputra added, Venerable Ananda, this same perfume emanates from all our pores as well. And where does this perfume come from? Ananda asks. Shariputra says, the Lichavi Vimalakirti obtains some food from the universe called Sarvaganda Suganda, from the Buddha land of the Tathagata Sugananda Kuta. And this perfume emanates from the bodies of all those who partook of the food. Uh, this goes on for a little while. How long will this perfume remain until it's digested? When will it be digested? Ananda asks. Vimalakirti says it will be digested in 49 days 
and its perfume will emanate for seven days more after that, but there will be no trouble of indigestion during that time. I don't want to go too into this, but let's just say that it's traditional, you know, in Buddhism that um, after someone dies, they're something, maybe their consciousness cruises around an ethereal plane for 49 days and for maybe seven more days after that until they're finally incarnated. So I hear references of that in here, but I don't actually know what this whole eating this food and the digesting of it, there's a deep metaphor going on here. And I'm not claiming to give you every, you know, that I know exactly what every word of this means. So I like to give you sometimes just leads or ideas. Um, questions real quick, because what's about to happen is, is that in front of all of these people, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, or sorry, the Bodhisattvas from Sugandakuta and the Bodhidharma and all this and all that, the Buddha is now about to deliver a discourse. And in fact, it's the first time the Buddha has basically spoken. He touched his toe and kind of said to Shariputra some things, but this is actually his first teaching in chapter 11. The perfume is the way that the Buddha in that land uh, uh, delivers the Dharma. Yeah, there's more to that, actually, where if you were to become his disciple in that land, he kind of uses his upaya and puts you to sit under a certain tree. And the scent of that tree, which is unlike any tree in this world, the scent of that tree teaches you the Dharma. So does that... Okay. Does, does your, the 49 and 7 days, does that have anything to do with... I don't know. Like, if there, if everyone who ate the food from that land ingested that perfume, does that mean they ingested the Dharma and that that's going to run out in 49 days or seven more days? This is what I don't know. So I'll give you one more. I'll give you one more. In other sutras, this um, idea of emptiness, this idea that because all things are dependently originated, in themselves, they are therefore empty. No clearer articulation of it than that. Because all things are dependently originated, all things in themselves are therefore empty. That idea that this is empty, that's empty, I'm empty, you're all of that, there's many sutras where that emptiness is described as a flavor or a scent that everything has. So there is a way even in this Buddha land in which the Buddha teaches the Dharma by way of sense. Because there are sutras in which he says or describes emptiness or dependently, pratitya samudpata, dependent origination, as the one taste everything has. And if you wanted to use a different sense, you could say it's the one feeling everything has. Or it's the, same, the way everything looks. So there's, you know, and I like in Buddhism where they say, let's skip vision for a while. And let's talk about the way everything smells. Everything smells dependently originated to a bodhisattva, right? So take that and think about this idea of eating this food and being 
permeated with the scent of it. Just putting that out there. Nowhere in this does it say that. This is me as a Dharma teacher saying to you, I have noticed this refrain in Buddhism where they call the true Dharma, the true teaching as like a flavor of everything. So then when I read a chapter like this, I'm like, huh. But that's where these things, none of these have, I can't write it on the board what it means. It means so much. You know what I mean? It's like so many facets to this. Please. What is the translation of Sarvagandra Suganda? Is is there any hints or clues in there? Yeah, well, Ganda is like a... um, uh, Spanish, best words probably in Spanish for a vista, okay. uh, which can be a physical location with a good view, right? So a, a plateau is like a vista. Sarva means all. So all, all vistas, the, this would basically, if, if my Sanskrit is worth anything, this means the, the view of all views, the vista of all vistas, the, the vista to end all vistas. The, does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The view to end all views. And, this, and uh, the kutta is like a heap. A heap of views is the name of the Buddha. Su. Oh, no, no, no. Su is, uh, sorry. Sue is beautiful, so it's all the. It's like the most beautiful view. Sarvaganda Suganda. Suganda is the beautiful view, so of all views, the most beautiful view, kind of a. So what I'm giving you from my Sanskrit is, the like I. It's not the literal meaning, because there might be a literal meaning to this, that my technical knowledge isn't good enough, but I'm definitely giving you the, the heart of what it means, knowing what these words mean and having read a bunch of other sutras. So. And definitely view as in vista, not view as in viewpoint understanding. Yeah, I want to make that clear, that it's this idea of like a, um, like when you've reached this plateau and you can like view out like in great distances that's this idea of, and then actually, if you're if you're curious, Ganda is the root of the word or the place Gandhara in Afghanistan, which is currently called I don't even know what it's called with with a K. Yeah, and I don't even you know my mind works in many different centuries, so um, that's the root of it, and so the root of that Gandhara is this idea that it is a place with a nice view type of an idea. The teaching, the teaching of the Buddha to all these people is the lesson of the destructible and the indestructible. So if you were following the Dharma through line of this sutra regarding the tolerance of the birthlessness of all things, that's like the through line of this sutra, The Buddha delivers this teaching about uh, the destructible and the indestructible. And what he says in here really quickly is, uh, Lord, please give us a teaching. Oh, yeah, so these are all 
from, all the bodhisattvas from Sarvaganda Suganda, they all asked, Lord, please give us a teaching by which we may remember you when we have returned to Sarvaganda Suganda. Sarvaganda Suganda. Thus, having been requested, the Buddha declared, Noble Sons, there is a liberation of bodhisattvas called destructible and indestructible. You must train yourselves in this liberation. What is it? Destructible refers to compounded things. And by compounded things, they are referring to dependently originated things. So destructible refers to dependently originated things. Indestructible refers to the uncompounded, which in Buddhism is nirvana. There is either one or two things that you can conceive of that are not conditioned, that are not pratitya samudpata, not dependently originated, that are totally independent of this world, have nothing to do with this world, are not affected by this world, nothing. Nirvana, and in some schools, akasha, or space. And in some schools, akasha and nirvana are the same thing. Anyways, it gets complicated, but this says destructible refers to compounded things. Indestructible refers to nirvana, the uncompounded. But the bodhisattva should neither destroy the compounded nor rest in the uncompounded. Not to destroy, the compound, not to destroy compounded things consists in not losing sight of the great love, not giving up the great compassion, not forgetting the omniscient mind generated by high resolve not tiring in the positive development of living beings, not abandoning the means of unification, giving up body and life in order to uphold the Holy Dharma, never being satisfied with the roots of virtue. And then there's a whole giant paragraph. And what he says here is, and what is being referred to, just to paraphrase it, is he's saying, even though, this is the answer to your question, even though I have just told you that this doesn't exist, is totally compounded, don't give up on it. Don't start thinking it doesn't exist. Don't destroy it. Don't destroy the compounded. May follow me? I, we'll get to the why in a second, but just the message is, yes, this is compounded, but don't negate it entirely. Don't get rid of it entirely. Okay? What is, so after all this, what is not resting in the compounded or in the uncompounded, I should say? The Bodhisattva practices emptiness but does not realize emptiness. He practices signlessness but does not realize signlessness. He practices aimlessness but does not realize aimlessness. He practices non-performance but does not realize non-performance. He knows impermanence but does not but is not complacent about his roots of virtue. He considers misery, but he reincarnates voluntarily. He knows selflessness, but does not waste himself. He considers peacefulness, but does not seek extreme peace. That right there. This whole sutra is like, you could just take 
one line and go away for years <laughs> and then come back to the next line. It's like that. So, um, so the, again, this goes on and on, but the end of this is saying, yes, you, Bodhisattva, you know how to access nirvana, the uncompounded. You know how to access total liberation, but you don't abide there. You don't zoom off in deep samadhi and stay there forever. You come back into this world. So you don't rest in the uncompounded, but you don't destroy the compounded. So this conventional world that everybody believes is real, you don't take a hammer and start, start smashing it. That's the, I mean, the Buddha says it much better than I could in much more detail. But it is the answer to that question, right? And it's kind of like, I mean, the, the deeper answer to it, though, like, I, I, I have tried to articulate this so many times. Let's try it again. I don't think I've ever successfully done this one. It's the thing that, oh, I, I can't even start. There's this thing going on where, let's say, let's go back to the bowl, right? The bowl is actually in my mind, but let's pretend like I'm not a Dharma teacher and I don't know that. So it's just normal, conventional person here. And I'm like, this is a nice bowl, right? So I'm going to own it. I'm going to... I want it. I want to take it home. Like, I want it, right? I want it in my mind. I want to have it. I want to own it, right? What Buddhism is saying from day one all through this is, is that that act of this is causing suffering, right? But not just this act is causing suffering, but the, ooh, I, I want it. I want it is causing suffering. So the desire to want it causes suffering. Having it causes suffering because you actually, for, from the eyes of a Buddha, I look like this. You know, like a Fro, or Frodo or whoever, right, with his ring. Like, yeah, it's mine. That, from a, from a, a Buddha's perspective, that's how we all look towards our things. <laughs> like that, Right. So the wisdom of the Buddha is that this is mind-created. It's totally mind-created. It's not real. I'm actually clinging to a figment of my imagination. I think I'm clinging to something. I'm actually clinging to an ideal bowl that's going to make me happy and fulfill all my dreams and make me a complete person. Whatever it is, that's the imaginary bowl that I'm holding on to. It looks like this, but I'm actually holding on to this, right? And that's causing suffering. That's what the Buddha came to explain to everybody. This act, whether it's this, or I want it, or I had it, it's gone. Oh, my bowl, right? It's suffering. It's suffering before I have it. It's suffering while I have it. And then it's suffering when I lose it. Suffering, 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 right? Yes, the Buddha wisdom just told me it's empty. But what Buddhism and Buddha never, ever, ever... Um, it never wants to ignore is the reality of suffering. 
when, when suffering is happening, it's real. And so it's like, this is what I can never quite articulate totally, but it's this idea that, yes, there's no such thing as cells and sentient beings, but suffering is real. And so there's a way in which, well, first of all, there's a way in which those two things are, can be simultaneously true, that there's no being, yet there is still suffering. And it's because, from a deeper Buddhist point of view, the notion or the sense of self is a byproduct of suffering. It's actually like that. It's like it's my sense of self comes from the suffering. So the idea is, is that as long as they're sentient beings, even though they're not real, but as long as they are the fictions of sentient beings clinging and suffering, that suffering is real. Even though I can be a bodhisattva and know that there's no Suzanne there, there's no sentient being there, but I can still know the suffering is real and as a bodhisattva have compassion towards the suffering to alleviate it, all while maintaining the wisdom that there's no Suzanne there to be suffering to begin with. Does that make sense? How those two things are like, and that's why bodhisattvas can't abandon. They, and it's why it says don't destroy the compounded and don't drift off in the uncompounded. Because again, again, it's like, you know, this is all uh, very, um, this is all very dangerous stuff. Your question's right to the point, which is like, in the wrong mind, an idea like this, oh, there's no such thing as sentient beings, right? That could be very problematic, right? But ultimately problematic for the person who, who, who gets it wrong, if that makes sense. I'm drifting off, so let me, I'm going to stop. <laughs> I was trying to go after an idea, but it was going to take too long to get there. And we have another chapter, perhaps the most important. So this, this lesson on the destructible and indestructible that comes chapter 11 there's a way in which all of this was just building you up for what is actually the sutra. Because remember, the sutra is the teachings of the Buddha, and this is the first time the Buddha is talking, basically, giving us the Dharma teaching. So, boom. Chapter 11. But now, let's, let's go all the way for vision of the universe. Thereupon, the Buddha said to the Lichavi, Vimalakirti, noble son. Uh, so this is how it starts. The Buddha asked Vimalakirti, noble son, when you see the Tathagata, how do you view him? The Tathagata, the Buddha, how do you view him? And um, Vimalakirti said, the Buddha, Lord, when I would see the Tathagata, I view him by not seeing the Tathagata. Why? I see him as not born from the past, not passing on to the future, and not abiding in the present moment. Why? He is the essence which is the reality of matter. But he is not matter. He is the essence which is the reality of sensations. But he is not sensations. He is the essence which is the reality of perception. 
yet he is not perception. He is the essence which is the reality of conditioning, yet he is not conditioning. He is the essence which is the reality of consciousness, yet he is not consciousness. Like the element of space, akasha, he does not abide in any of the four elements. Transcending the scope of the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind, he is not produced in the six sense media. He is not involved in the triple world of form, of, of feeling, or sorry, of sensation, ah, sensations, form, and formlessness. It's not part of the triple world. He is free of the three defilements. He is, he is associated with the triple liberation, is endowed with the three knowledges, and has truly attained the unattainable. So that's how Vimalakirti sees the Buddha or the Tathagata, by not seeing him. Right. Goes on. Da, da, da. Then the venerable Shariputra asked the Buddha, Lord, in which Buddha land did the noble Vimalakirti die before being reincarnated in this Buddha land? And the Buddha said, Shariputra, ask this good man directly where he died and where and why he reincarnated here. Or sorry, where he died to reincarnate here. Shariputra is seriously going to ask him this, right? He's going to ask Vimalakirti? Yeah, where he died. He's going to have a smart-ass answer, yeah. So, <laughs> so then the venerable Shariputra asked the Lichavi Vimalakirti, Noble sir, where did you die to reincarnate here? And Vimalakirti declared, Is there anything among the things that you see, Elder, that dies or is reborn? Shariputra says, there is nothing that dies or is reborn. Likewise, Shariputra, as all things neither die nor are reborn, why do you ask, where did you die, in where did you die to reincarnate here? Reverend Shariputra, if one were to ask a man or a woman created by a magician where he or she died to reincarnate, what do you think he or she would answer? Noble sir, a magical creation does not die, nor is it reborn. Reverend Shariputra, did not the Tathagata declare that all things have the nature of a magical creation? Yes, noble sir, that is indeed so. Reverend Shariputra, since all things have the nature of a magical creation, why did you ask, where have you died to reincarnate here? Reverend Shariputra, death is an end of the performance, and rebirth is the continuation of the performance. But although a bodhisattva dies, he does not put an end to the performance of the roots of virtue. And although he is reborn, he does not adhere to the continuation of his sins. If you ever read Buddhist stuff and see the word sin, please know it does not mean sin. They just never have a not-Christian word for it. So, it's unfortunate. Then the Buddha said to Venerable Shariputra, Shariputra, this holy person came here <clears throat> from the presence of the Tathagata Akshobhya in the universe called Abhirati. Shariputra says, Lord, it's so wonderful that this holy person having left a Buddha, a Buddha land as pure as Abhirati, 
should enjoy a Buddha land as full of defects as this Saha world. You would really think Shariputra would have figured it out by now, right? The Lichavi Vimalakirti said, uh, so this is a little Vimalakirtiism. Shariputra, what do you think? Does the light of the sun accompany the darkness? Certainly not, noble sir. Then the two do not go together? Noble sir, those two do not go together. As soon as the sun rises, all darkness is destroyed. Then why does the sun rise over the whole world? It rises to, the Shariputra says, it rises to illuminate the world and to eliminate the darkness. The Malakirti says, just in the same way, Shariputra, the Bodhisattva reincarnates voluntarily into the impure Buddha lands in order to purify the living beings and in order to make the light of wisdom shine and in order to clear away all darkness. Since they do not associate themselves with the passions, they dispel the darkness of the passions of all living beings. Thereupon, the entire multitude experience simultaneously the desire to behold the universe Abhirati, the Tathagata Akshobhya, his bodhisattvas, and all his great disciples. The Buddha, knowing the thoughts of the entire multitude, said to the Lichavi Vimalakirti, Noble son, this multitude wishes to behold the universe Abhirati and the Tathagata Akshobhya. Show them! So then the Lichavi Vimalakirti thought, Without rising from my couch, I shall pick up in my right hand the universe of Abhirati, and all that it contains, its hundreds of thousands of bodhisattvas, its heavenly abodes, bounded by the Chakravata mountains, its rivers, lakes, fountains, streams, oceans, and other bodies of water, its Mount Simaru, its other hills and mountain ranges, its moon, its sun, its stars, its devas, nagas, yakshas, gandharavas, asuras themselves, even its brahmas and his whole retinue, even its villages, cities, towns, provinces, kingdoms, men, women, and houses, its bodhisattvas, its disciples, the tree of enlightenment of Tathagata Akshobhya, and Tathagata Akshobhya himself, seated in the middle of an assembly, vast as the ocean, teaching the Dharma. Also, the lotuses that accomplish the Buddha work among all the living beings there, the three jeweled ladders that rise from its earth to the 33 levels of heaven on which the ladders of the gods of that heaven descend to see our world, honor and serve the Buddha and to hear his dharma and on which the men of the earth climb to see the 33 uh, heavens and to visit those gods. Like a potter with his wheel, I will reduce that universe, Abhirati, with its store of innumerable virtues, from its watery base all the way up to the Akanchitha heaven, to a minute size, and carry it gently like a garland of flowers, and I will bring it to this Saha universe, and I will show it to the multitudes. Then the Malakirti entered into a concentration and performed a miraculous feat, such that he reduced the entire universe of Abhirati into a minute size, took it up in his right hand, and brought it into this Saha universe. And in that universe, Abhi, in that universe called Abhirati, 
the disciples, the bodhisattvas, and all the gods and men who possessed the superknowledges of the divine eye all cried out, Oh, Lord, where are we being carried away to? Uh, Sugata, blessed one, we are being carried away. Protect us, protect us. But to discipline them, the Tathagata Akshobhya said to them, You're being carried off by the Bodhisattva Bivalkirti. It's not my deal. It's not my, I have nothing to do with it. As for the other men and gods, they had no awareness at all that they were being carried anywhere. And although the universe Abhirati had been brought into the Saha world, and the Saha, the Saha world was not increased or diminished, it was neither compressed nor obstructed, nor was the universe Abhirati reduced internally, and both universes appeared to be the same as they were before. Thereupon, the Buddha Shakyamuni asked all of the multitudes, all of the multitudes, right? Friends, behold the splendors of the universe Abhirati, the Tathagata Akshobhya, the array of his Buddha lands, the splendors of these disciples and these bodhisattvas. And they all replied, we see them, Lord. And the Buddha said, those bodhisattvas who wish to embrace such a Buddha land should train themselves in all the bodhisattva practices of the Tathagata Akshobhya. Um, while the Malakirti, with his miraculous power, showed them thus the universe Abhirati and the Tathagata Akshobhya, 140,000 living beings among the men and gods of the Saha world conceived the spirit of unexcelled perfect enlightenment and all of them formed a prayer to be reborn in the universe Abhirati. And the Buddha prophesied that in the future, all would be reborn in the universe Abhirati. And the Lichavi Vimalakirti, having thus developed all the living beings who could thereby be developed, returned the universe Abhirati exactly to its former place. The Lord then said to Shariputra, Shariputra, did you see that universe Abhirati in the Tathagata Akshobhya? And Shariputra replied, I saw it, Lord. May all living beings come to live in a Buddha land as splendid as that. May all living beings come to have miraculous powers, just like those of the noble Lichavi Vimalakirti. We have gained such great benefit from having seen this holy man. We have gained a great benefit from having heard his teaching of the Dharma. Whether the Tathagata himself still actually exists or whether he has already attained ultimate liberation. Hence, there is no need to maintain the great benefit for those who, having heard it, believe it, rely on it, embrace it, remember it, read it, and penetrate it to its death. And having found faith in it, teach, recite, and recite, and show it to others, and apply themselves to the yoga of meditation upon its teaching. Those living beings who understand correctly this teaching of the Dharma will obtain the treasury of the jewels of the Dharma. And everybody was excited. <laughs> that's the end of the sutra proper chapter 12 in the Tibetan version which this is translated from there is an epilogue that is actually devoted to the medicine Buddha by Shajaraja the medicine king and what happens in this last epilogue 
is that basically it's sort of how to dedicate yourself to this Buddha and kind of how to dedicate, excuse me, dedicate the merit of this sutra. So it's a chapter that by its nature accepts that the sutra is over and that the, this last part is just like how to extract the merit and pass it to other beings, but from the teachings. These are the teachings, and then there's an epilogue on how to like extract the power and give it away and do these things. In the Chinese version, this is actually chapter 13, and then there's a chapter 14, which is how to like really, really, you know. So <laughs> if, you, if you study this sutra historically, you would like linguistically or literarily begin to detect, oh, this was probably the original sutra, and then they added on this chapter and that chapter. Um, so I feel safe in just ending there and saying that's the Vimalakirti Sutra. Svaha, behold. <laughs>